Welcome, I am your host, and this is the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of my new podcast, Unanswered Questions, where every week we will endeavour to discuss a mysterious unsolved case that has many lingering unanswered questions. So I hope you enjoy, and as always, leave me some feedback on what you think about the show, and rate it as well. Now on to the show. This week we'll be talking about the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa. So James Riddle Hoffa, known as Jimmy Hoffa, was an American labour union leader who served as the president of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, IBT, from 1957 until 1971. From an early age, Hoffa was a union activist and he became an important regional figure with the IBT by his mid-twenties. By 1952, he was the national vice president of the IBT and between 1957 and 1971, he was its general president. He secured the first national agreement for Teamsters rates in 1964 with the National Master Freight Agreement. He played a major role in the growth and the development of the union, which eventually became the largest by membership in the United States, with over 2.3 million members at its peak during his terms as its leader. Hoffa became involved with organised crime from the early years of his Teamsters work, a connection that continued until his disappearance in 1975. He was convicted of jury tampering, attempted bribery, conspiracy and mail and wire fraud in 1964 in two separate trials. He was imprisoned in 1967 and sentenced to 13 years. However, in mid-1971, he resigned as president of the union as part of a commutation agreement with US President Richard Nixon and was released later that year. But Hoffa was barred from union activities until 1980. Hoping to regain support and return to IBT leadership, he unsuccessfully tried to overturn the order. Hoffa disappeared on the 30th of January 1975 and it's believed that he was murdered by the Mafia and was declared legally dead in 1982. His body has never been found. Its location, along with Hoffa's legacy, continues to stir debate, even today. Now we're going to get into his early life and family. So, Hoffa was born in Brazil, Indiana on the 14th of February 1913 to John and Viola Riddle Hoffa. His father, who was of German descent from what is now referred to as the Pennsylvania Dutch, died in 1920 from lung disease when Hoffa was only seven years old. His mother was of Irish ancestry and the family moved to Detroit in 1924 where Hoffa was raised and lived for the rest of his life. He left school at the age of 14 and began working in full-time manual labour jobs to help support his family. Hoffer ended up marrying Josephine, and I'm going to butcher this last name, Poziewak, an 18-year-old Detroit laundry worker of Polish heritage in Bowling Green, Ohio, on the 24th of September 1936. The couple had met six months earlier during a non-unionized laundry worker's strike action. They had two children, a daughter, Barbara Ann Kranzer, and a son, James P. Hoffer. The Hoffers paid $6,800 in 1939 for a modest home in northwestern Detroit, and the family later owned a simple summer lakefront cottage in Oren Township, Michigan, north of Detroit. Now we're going to get into his early union activities and the growth of the Teamsters Union. So, Hoffa began union organisational work at the grassroots level as a teenager through his job with a grocery chain, which paid substandard wages and offered poor working conditions with minimal job security. The workers were displeased with that situation and tried to organise a union to better their lot. Although Hoffa was young, his courage and approachability in that role impressed fellow workers and he rose to a leadership position. By 1932, after refusing to work for an abusive shift foreman, Hoffa left the grocery chain partly because of his union activities. He was then invited to become an organiser with a local 299 of the Teamsters in Detroit. 
The Teamsters, founded in 1903, had 75,000 members in 1933 as a result of Hoffa's work with other union leaders to consolidate local union trucker groups into regional sections and then into a national body, which Hoffa ultimately completed over two decades. Membership grew to 170,000 members by 1936, and three years later there were 420,000 members. The number grew steadily during World War II and in the post-war boom to top a million members by 1951. The Teamsters organized truck drivers and warehouse men throughout the Midwest and then nationwide. Hoffa played a major role in the union's skillful use of quickie strikes, secondary boycotts, and other means of leveraging union strength at one company, then moved to organize workers and finally to win contract demands at other companies. That process, which took several years starting in the early 1930s, eventually brought the Teamsters to a position of being one of the most powerful unions in the United States. Trucking unions in that era were heavily influenced by, and in many cases, controlled by elements of organized crime. For Hoffa to unify and expand trucking unions, he had to make accommodations and arrangements with many gangsters. Beginning in the Detroit area, organized crime influence on the IBT increased as the union itself grew. To give an example of how powerful unions were, Michael Franzi, a well-known mafia mob boss, talked about how the unions ran everything back when the mafia was at the height of their power. Well, you also, uh, in the book, talked about how the unions, uh, as an example, how the, the government's becoming a mafia democracy. Mm-hmm. Now, were you yourself involved in the unions during your heyday? Yes. Explain how you were involved. Well, I had uh, control of a local that had bartenders and waitresses. I also had the security guards union. Security guard union that we had, I don't know if you know this, but we had, um, we had people uh, stationed at uh, some nuclear power plants, nine of them all together. And uh, the law at that time, I don't know if it's changed, is that when a nuclear power plant closes down, you have to have security around it for 100 years. Hundred years, even though it's closed down, and uh, so the mob was protecting the nuclear power plants that we had because we control the unions. You know, waitresses and bartenders. Um, I had control of those unions because um, you know we put we installed the uh, the delegates in there. We installed the the uh, president of the union, and basically we used it as a tool. You know, you go into a restaurant. Hey, you want the union? No. Okay, we're going to pick it and so on and so forth. Otherwise, you can pay us twenty five grand every Christmas. We'll leave you alone. And so we use the unions in that way. And then, um, you know, even if we didn't control the union, our other, you know, associates did, and we made deals with them construction-wise and every other way so that, you know, we can use the unions again to make money off of contractors like Trump and all the big ones, Helmsley. So people say, I'll tell you, you know, was Trump involved with the mob? Every major contractor was involved with the mob. They had to be. Every developer, you know, every real estate guy. But not to the point where uh, he sat down with us and, you know, we, we controlled him in any way. Sammy de Bulgravano, who was the well-known underboss of the Gambino crime family, also gave examples like how Donald Trump had to use the mafia-run unions to get his buildings built. Otherwise, if he tried to do it on his own and go around the mafia unions, these unions would come in and shut down construction and constrict everything until the unions were paid and the mafia got its cut. The big jobs in the city, big concrete, the high-rise buildings, was done mainly by about four or five big concrete companies that would do that kind of work. They would pick out one company. They'd get in touch with all the other ones. They would tell him, it's your turn, you do the job, whatever the normal bid is, raise it up 
so that you can make more money. Put that 2% in so you can give that to us. We'll get to the other three, four companies with our unions and everybody. We'll tell them what to bill, how much to bid. Now, I'm going to use Trump as an example. He has a company. It's a developing company. He's doing a high rise. He puts out bids for people to come out and bid on his work. He has a staff. He knows what the number is. I'm going to use a hypothetical number. Let's say the job is worth $20 million. He knows that. What he generally does, he takes the low bidder and throws him out. He takes the high bidder and he throws him out. He gets the people who are right around that $20 million. He knows they're qualified. He gives it to one of them. So he knows what the numbers are. So here's what they're going to do. We'll use that $20 million number. This contractor will tell him, you go in and bid $25 million. He'll go to the second contractor. You bid $28 million. They go to the third contractor. You tell him you're too busy. You can't do his work. So he's left with the guy, a $20 million job, who bid 22 or 22.5 or 23. Trump immediately knows that it's a setup. He's not stupid. He has an organization. He's been dealing with these people. He knows he's in a trick bag. But there's nothing he can do. Infiltration by organized crime dominated the agenda of the Teamsters throughout the 1950s. The Teamsters had suffered from extensive corruption since its formation in 1903, although the more extreme public forms of corruption had been eliminated after General President Cornelius Shea was removed from office, the extent of corruption and control by organized crime increased during General President Tobin's time in office, which was from 1907 to 1952. In 1929, the Teamsters and unions in Chicago even approached gangster Roger Tui and asked for his protection from Al Capone and his Chicago outfit, which were seeking to control the area's unions. Evidence of widespread corruption within the Teamsters began emerging shortly after Tobin retired. In Kansas City, corrupt Teamsters locals spent years seeking bribes, embezzling money, and engaging in extensive extortion labor rackets, as well as beatings, vandalisms, and even bombings in an attempt to control the construction and trucking industries. The problem was so serious that the U.S. House of Representatives held hearings on the issue. Hoffa's attempt to challenge Beck caused a major national scandal which led to two congressional investigations, several indictments for fraud and other crimes against Beck and Hoffa, strict new federal legislation and regulations regarding labor unions, and even helped launch the political career of Robert F. Kennedy. Believing he needed additional votes to upseat Beck, in October of 1956, mobster Johnny Dio met with Hoffa in New York City and the two men conspired to create as many as 15 paper locals to boost Hoffa's delegate total. When the paper locals applied for charters from the International Union, Hoffa's political foes were outraged. A major battle broke out within the Teamsters over whether to charter the locals, and the media attention led to inquiries by the U.S. Department of Justice and the Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations of the U.S. Senate Committee on Government Operations. Try saying that three times fast. 
Beck and other Teamster leaders challenged the authority of the US Senate to investigate the union, which caused the Senate in turn to establish the Select Committee on Improper Activities in Labor and Management, a new committee with broad subpoena and investigative powers. Senator John L. McLennan, chair of the Select Committee, hired Robert F. Kennedy as a subcommittee's chief counsel and investigator. The Select Committee, also known as the McLennan Committee after its chairman, exposed widespread corruption in the Teamsters Union. Dave Beck fled the country for a month to avoid its subpoenas before returning. Four of the paper locals were dissolved to avoid committee scrutiny. Several Teamsters staffers were charged with contempt of Congress and union records were lost or destroyed allegedly on purpose, and wiretaps were played in public before a national television audience in which Dio and Hoffa discussed the creation of even more paper locals. Evidence was unearthed of a mob-sponsored plot in which Oregon Teamsters unions would seize control of the state legislature, state police, and state attorney general's office through bribery, extortion, and blackmail. Initially, members of the union did not believe the charges and support for Beck was strong, but after three months of continuous allegations of wrongdoing, many rank-and-file Teamsters withdrew their support and openly called for Beck to resign. Beck initially refused to address the allegations, but broke his silence and denounced the committee's inquiry on March 6th. But even as the committee conducted its investigation, the Teamsters charted even more paper locals. In mid-March 1957, Jimmy Hoffa was arrested for allegedly trying to bribe a Senate aide. Hoffa denied the charges, of course, but the arrest triggered additional investigations and more arrests and indictments over the following weeks. A week later, Beck admitted to receiving an interest-free $300,000 loan from the Teamsters, which he had never repaid, and Senate investigators claimed that loans to Beck and other union officials, and their businesses, had cost the union more than $700,000. Beck appeared before the Select Committee for the first time on the 25th of March 1957 and invoked his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination 117 times. The McClellan Committee turned its focus to Hoffa and other Teamsters officials and presented testimony and evidence alleging widespread corruption in Hoffa-controlled Teamster units. Several historic legal developments came out of the Select Committee's investigation. The scandals uncovered by the McLennan Committee, which affected not only the Teamsters but several other unions, led directly to the passage of the Labor Management Reporting and Disclosure Act, also known as the Landrum-Griffin Act, in 1959. The right of union officials to exercise their Fifth Amendment rights was upheld, and a significant refinement of constitutional law made when the U.S. Supreme Court reaffirmed the right of union officials to not divulge the location of union records in Cure versus United States, 354 U.S. 118 of 1957. Rank-and-file anger over the McClellan Committee's revelations eventually led Beck to retire from the Teamsters and allowed Jimmy Hoffa to take over. Immediately after his testimony in late March of 1957, Beck won approval from the union's executive board to establish a $1 million fund to defend himself and the union from the committee's allegations. But, member outrage at the expenditure was significant and permission to establish the fund rescinded. Member anger continued to grow throughout the spring and Beck's majority support on the executive board vanished. Beck was called before the McClellan Committee again in early May of 1957 and additional interest-free loans and other potentially illegal and unethical financial transactions exposed. Based on these revelations, Beck was indicted for tax evasion on May 2nd of 1957. Beck's legal troubles led him to retire and offered to win the election to the union presidency. Support for Beck among the membership evaporated and Beck announced on May 25th he would not run for re-election in October. The announcement created chaos among the union leadership, and despite additional indictments, Hoffa announced he would seek the presidency on July 19th. 
Rank and file support for Hoffer was strong, although there were some attempts to organise an opposition candidate. Hoffer's opponents asked a federal judge to postpone the election, but the request was granted only temporarily, and Hoffer was duly elected General President of the Union on October 4th of 1957. Beck offered to retire early to allow Hoffer to take control of the Union in December. However, a federal district court barred Hoffer from taking power unless he was acquitted in his wiretapping trial. The ruling was upheld by a court of appeals, but the trial ended in a hung jury on the December 19th of 1957 and Hoffer assumed the presidency on February 1st of 1958. The worsening corruption scandal led the AFL-CIO to eject the Teamsters. AFL-CIO President George Meany worried that corruption scandals plaguing a number of unions at the time might lead to harsh regulation of unions or even the withdrawal of federal labour law protection began an, and began an anti-corruption drive in April of 1956. New rules were enacted by the Labour Federation's Executive Council that provided for the removal of vice presidents engaged in corruption as well as the ejection of unions considered corrupt. The McClellan Committee's investigation only worsened the dispute between the AFL-CIO and the Teamsters. In January 1957, the AFL-CIO proposed a new rule which would bar officers of the Federation from continuing to hold office if they exercised their Fifth Amendment rights in a corruption investigation. Beck opposed the new rule, but the Ethical Practices Committee of AFL-CIO instituted the rule on January 31st of 1957. The Teamsters were given 90 days to reform, but Beck retaliated by promising more raids on AFL-CIO member unions if the union was ousted. Beck's opposition prompted a successful move by Meany to remove Beck from AFL-CIO Executive Council on grounds of corruption. After extensive hearings and appeals which lasted from July to September of 1957, the AFL-CIO voted on September 25th of 1957 to eject the Teamsters if the union did not institute reforms within 30 days. Beck refused to institute any forms and the election of Jimmy Hoffa, whom the AFL-CIO considered just as corrupt as Beck, led the Labour Federation to suspend the Teamsters union on October 20th. 24th of 1957. Meany offered to keep the Teamsters within the AFL-CIO if Hoffer resigned as president, but Hoffer refused and the formal expulsion occurred on December 6th of 1957. The Teamsters were not, however, the only corrupt union in the AFL-CIO by any means. Another was the International Longshoremen's Association, ILA, which represented Steve Dawes in most East Coast ports. The Teamsters had long desired to bring all shipping and transportation workers into the union so that no product could be moved anywhere in the US without it being touched by Teamsters' hands. As the ILA came under increasing attack for permitting corruption in its locals, President Beck sought to bring the ILA into the Teamsters. The AFL ousted the ILA in September of 1953 and formed the International Brotherhood of Longshoremen, AFL, IBL-AFL, to represent longshoremen on the Great Lakes and East Coast. The Teamsters planned to raid the expelled union and may have even hoped to seize control of the IBL-AFL. Beck undertook a campaign to bring the ILA back into the AFL in early 1955, but the election of mob associate Anthony Tough Tony Anastasio sorry if I pronounced that wrong, as an ILA vice president forced Beck to end the effort. But even as Beck backed away from any ILA deal, Jimmy Hoffa secretly negotiated a major package of financial and staff aid to the ILA and then went public with the deal, forcing Beck to accept it as a fait accompli or risk embarrassing Hoffa. The AFL-CIO threatened to expel the Teamsters if it aided the ILA. Beck fought Hoffa over the ILA aid package and won, withdrawing the offer to the ILA in the spring of 1956. 
The ILA was not the only union the Teamsters sought to merge with. The union attempted to merge with the mine, mill and smelter works in 1955, but the effort failed. The union also sought a merger with the brewery workers, but the smaller union rejected the offer. When the overture failed, the Teamsters raided the brewery workers, leading to fierce protests by the CIO. Raiding by the Teamsters was such a serious issue that it prompted the AFL and CIO, which had attempted to sign a no-raid agreement for years, to finally negotiate and implement such a pact in December of 1953. President Beck initially refused to sign the agreement and threatened to take the Teamsters out of the AFL if forced to adhere to it. Three months after the pact was signed, the Teamsters agreed to submit to the terms of the no-raid agreement. Shortly thereafter, the AFL adopted Article 20 of its constitution, which prevented its members' unions from raiding one another. The union's affection for raiding led it to initially oppose the AFL-CIO merger in January 1955, but it quickly reversed itself. Now we come to the rise, fall, and the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa. So, Hoffa achieved his goal of unifying all freight drivers under a single collective bargaining agreement, the National Master Freight Agreement, in 1964. Hoffa used the grievance procedures of the agreement, which authorised selective strike against particular employers to police the agreement, or, if Hoffa thought that it served the union's interest, to drive marginal employers out of the industry. The union won substantial gains for its members, fostering a nostalgic image of the Hoffa era as the golden age for Teamsters drivers. Hoffa also succeeded with Tobin and failed, concentrating power at the international level, dominating the conferences which Beck and Dobbs had helped build. In addition, Hoffa was instrumental in using the assets of the Teamsters pension plans, particularly the Central States plan, to support mafia projects, such as the development of Las Vegas in the 1950s and 1960s. Pension funds were loaned to finance Las Vegas casinos, such as the Stardust Resort and Casino, the Fremont Hotel and Casino, the Desert Inn, the Dunes Hotel and Casino, which was controlled by Hoffa's attorney Morris Snenka, sorry if I pronounced that wrong, the Four Queens, the Aladdin Hotel and Casino, Circus Circus and Caesars Palace. The pension fund also made a number of loans to associates and relatives of high-ranking Teamster officials. A close associate of Hoffa during this period was Alan Dorfman. Dorfman owned an insurance agency that provided insurance claims processing to the Teamsters Union and which was a subject of an investigation by the McClellan Committee. Dorfman also had increasing influence over loans made by the Teamsters Pension Fund and after Hoffa went to prison in 1967, Dorfman had primary control over the fund. Dorfman was murdered in January 1983 shortly after his conviction along with Teamsters President Roy Lee Williams in a bribery case. Hoffa was, moreover, defiantly unwilling to reform to union or limit his own power. In response to the attacks from Robert F. Kennedy, formerly chief counsel to the McClellan Committee, then Attorney General, Kennedy's Department of Justice tried to convict Hoffa for a variety of offences over the 1960s, finally succeeding on a witness tampering charge in 1964, with key testimony provided by Teamsters business agent Edward Grady Parton of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. After exhausting his appeals, Hoffa entered prison in 1967. Hoffa installed Frank Fitzsimmons, an associate from his days in Local 299 in Detroit, to hold his place for him while he served time. Fitzsimmons, however, began to enjoy the exercise of power in Hoffa's absence. In addition, the organised crime figures around him found that he was more pliant than Hoffa had been. While President Nixon's pardon barred Hoffa from resuming any roles in the Teamsters until 1980, Hoffa challenged the legality of that condition and planned to run again for presidency of the Union, but disappeared in 1975 under mysterious circumstances. 
Now we're going to get into the National Master Freight Agreement. So, following his re-election as president in 1961, Hoffel worked to expand the union. In 1964, he succeeded in bringing virtually all over-the-road truck drivers in North America under a single National Master Freight Agreement, which may have been his biggest achievement in a lifetime of union activity. Hoffer then tried to bring airline workers and other transport employees into the union with limited success. He was then facing immense personal strain as he was under investigation, on trial, launching appeals of convictions or imprisoned for virtually all of the 1960s. Hoffer was re-elected without opposition to a third five-year term as president of the IBT, despite having been convicted of jury tampering and mail fraud and court verdicts that were stayed pending review on appeal. Delegates in Miami Beach also elected Frank Fitzsimmons as first vice president, who would become president if Hoffer has to serve a jail term. Now we get into the criminal charges. So, Hoffer had first faced major criminal investigations in 1957 as a result of the McClellan Committee, which I've talked a lot about. On March 14th of 1957, Hoffer was arrested for allegedly trying to bribe an aide to the select committee. Hoffer denied the charges and was later acquitted, but the arrest triggered additional investigations and more arrests and indictments over the following weeks. When John F. Kennedy was elected president in 1960, he appointed his younger brother, Robert, as Attorney General. Robert Kennedy had been frustrated in earlier attempts to convict Hoffa while working as counsel to the McClellan subcommittee. As Attorney General from 1961, Kennedy pursued a strong attack on organized crime and he carried on with his so-called Get Hoffa Squad of prosecutors and investigators. In May of 1963, Hoffa was indicted for jury tampering in Tennessee, charged with the attempted bribery of a grand juror during his 1962 conspiracy trial in Nashville. Hoffa was convicted on March 4th of 1964 and subsequently sentenced to eight years in prison and a $10,000 fine. While on bail during his appeal, Hoffer was convicted in a second trial held in Chicago on July 26th of 1964 on one count of conspiracy and three counts of mail and wire fraud for improper use of the Teamsters pension fund and sentenced to five years in prison. Hoffer spent the next three years unsuccessfully appealing his 1964 convictions. Appeals filed by his chief counsel, St. Louis defense attorney Morris Schenker, reached the U.S. Supreme Court. He began serving his aggregate prison sentence of 13 years, 8 years for bribery, 5 years for fraud, on March 7th of 1967 at the Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary in Pennsylvania. Now we come to the appointment of Fitzsimmons as caretaker president. So, when Hoffer entered prison, Frank Fitzsimmons was named acting president of the union, and Hoffer planned to run the union from prison through Fitzsimmons. Fitzsimmons was a Hoffer loyalist, fellow Detroit resident, and a longtime member of Teamsters Local 299, who owned his own high position in large part to Hoffer's influence. Despite this, however, Fitzsimmons soon distanced himself from Hoffer's influence and control after 1967 to Hoffer's displeasure. Fitzsimmons also also decentralized power somewhat within the IBT's administration structure, foregoing much of the control Hoffer took advantage of as union president. While still in prison, Hoffer resigned as Teamsters president on June 19th of 1971, and Fitzsimmons was elected Teamsters president on July 9th of 1971. Now we come to what happened after Hoffer came out of prison. So, on December 23rd of 1971, less than five years into his 13-year sentence, Hoffer was released from prison when U.S. President Richard Nixon commuted it to time served. As a result of Hoffer's previous resignation, he was awarded a $1.75 million lump sum termination benefit by the Teamsters Retirement and Family Protection Plan. That type of pension settlement had never occurred within the Teamsters. The IBT then endorsed Nixon, a Republican, in his presidential re-election bid in 1972. In prior elections, the union had normally supported Democratic nominees, but had endorsed Nixon in 1960. 
Hoffa regained his freedom, but the commutation from Nixon did not allow Hoffa to engage in direct or indirect management of any labor organization until March 6th of 1980. Hoffa contended that he had never agreed to that condition, and Hoffa accused senior Nixon administration figures, including Attorney General John N. Mitchell and White House Special Counsel Charles Colson, of depriving him of his rights by imposing that condition. It was suspected that the condition had been imposed upon Hoffa because of requests from the Teamsters' leadership, but that was denied by Fitzsimmons. By 1973, Hoffa was planning to seize the presidency of the Teamsters again. Hoffa sued to invalidate the restriction so that he could reassert his power over the Teamsters. John Dean, former White House counsel to Nixon, was among those called upon for depositions in 1974 court proceedings. Dean, who had become famous as a government witness in prosecutions arising from the Watergate scandal by mid-1973, had drafted the clause in 1971 at Nixon's request. Hoffa ultimately lost his court battle, since the court ruled that Nixon had acted within his powers by imposing the restriction as it had been based on Hoffa's misconduct while he was serving as a Teamsters official. Hoffa faced immense resistance to his re-establishment of power from many corners and had lost much of his earlier support, even in the Detroit area. As a result, he intended to begin his comeback at the local level with Local 299 in Detroit, where he retained some influence. In 1975, Hoffa was working on an autobiography, Hoffa, The Real Story, which was published a few months after his disappearance. He had earlier published a book titled The Trials of Jimmy Hoffa, released in 1917. Now we get into the disappearance of Hoffa. So, Hoffa's plans to regain the leadership of the union were met with opposition from several members of the Mafia. One of them was Anthony Provenanzo, who had been a Teamsters local leader in New Jersey and a national vice president of the union during Hoffa's second term as its president. Provenanzo had once been a friend of Hoffa's, but became an enemy after a reported feud, where both were in federal prison at Lewisburg, Pennsylvania in the 1960s. In 1973 and 74, Hoffa asked him for his support to regain his former position, but Provenanza refused and threatened Hoffa by reportedly saying he would pull out his guts and kidnap his grandchildren. Provenanza was a capo regime in the New York City Genovese crime family. At least two of Provenanza's union opponents had been murdered and others who had spoken out against him had been assaulted. Other Mafia figures who became involved were Anthony Giacalone, an alleged kingpin in the Detroit Mafia, and his younger brother Vito. Uh, I do apologize if I get those names wrong. I'm not good at pronouncing last first and last names sometimes, so I do apologize if that name is wrong, listeners. The FBI believes that they were positioning themselves as mediators between Hoffa and Provenanzo. The brothers had made three visits to Hoffa's home at Lake Oren and one to the Guardian Building Law Offices. Their avowed purpose in meeting Hoffa was to set up a peace meeting between Provenanzo and Hoffa. Hoffa's son, James, said, and I quote, Dad was pushing so hard to get back in office, I was increasingly afraid that the mob would do something about it, end quote. James was convinced that the peace meeting was a pretext to Giacalone's setting Dad up for a hit since Hoffa had been increasingly uneasy each time the Giacalone brothers arrived. So, as it's been well recorded, Hoffa disappeared on July 30th of 1975 after he had gone out to the meeting with Provenanzo and Gia Cologne. The meeting was due to take place at 2pm at Macus Red Fox Restaurant in Bloomfield Township, a Detroit suburb. The place was known to Hoffa as it had been the site of the wedding reception of his son James. Hoffa wrote Gia Cologne's initials at the time and location of the meeting in his office calendar. TG, 2pm, Red Fox, he wrote, end quote. 
Hoffa left his home at 1.15pm before heading to the restaurant he stopped at the office of his close friend Louis Lintow, a former president of Teamsters Local 614, who now ran a limousine firm. Lintow and Hoffa had been enemies earlier in their careers, but eventually became friends. When Hoffa left prison, Lintow had also become Hoffa's unofficial appointment secretary, and arranged a dinner meeting between Hoffa and the Giacolone brothers on July 26th, in which they had informed him of the July 30th meeting. Lintow was out to lunch when Hoffa had stopped by, and so Hoffa talked to some of the staff present and left a message for Lin Tao before he left for the Marcus Red Fox. Between 2.15 and 2.30, an annoyed Hoffa called his wife from a payphone on a post in front of Damon Hardware, directly behind the Marcus Red Fox, and complained that Gia Cologne had not shown up and that he had been stood up. His wife told him she had not heard from anyone. He told her he'd be home at 4pm to grill steaks for dinner. Several witnesses saw Hoffa standing by his car and pacing the restaurant's parking lot. Two men saw Hoffa, recognised him, and stopped to chat with him briefly and to shake his hand. Hoffa also made a call to Lin Tao, in which he again complained that the men were late. Lin Tao gave the time is 3.30pm, but the FBI suspected that it was earlier based on the timing of other phone calls from Lintel's office from around that time. The FBI estimates that Hoffa left the location without a struggle around 2.45 to 2.50pm. One witness reported seeing Hoffa in the back of a marooned Lincoln or Mercury car with three other people. Now we get into the investigation side of things. So, at 7am the next day, Hoffa's wife called her son and daughter to say that their father had not come home. On her way home, Hoffa's daughter claimed to have had a vision of her father, who she was already sure was dead. He was slumped over and wore a dark coloured short sleeve polo shirt. It had mystified her ever since that although she could not have possibly known that prior to her arrival at Lake Orin, that clothing in her vision was exactly what Hoffa was wearing when he disappeared. At 7.20am, Lintow went to the Marcus Red Fox and found Hoffa's unlocked car in the parking lot, but there was no sign of Hoffa nor any indication of what happened to him. He called the police, who later arrived at the scene. The Michigan State Police were brought in and the FBI was alerted. At 6pm, Hoffa's son James filed a missing persons report. The Hoffa family then offered a $200,000 reward for any information about the disappearance. The primary piece of physical evidence obtained in the investigation was a maroon 1975 Mercury Marquis Broham, which belonged to Anthony Giaclone's son Joseph. The car had been borrowed earlier that day by Charles Chucky O'Brien to deliver fish. O'Brien was Hoffa's foster son, although relations between them had soured in the years preceding Hoffa's disappearance. Investigators and Hoffa's family suspected that O'Brien had, had a role in Hoffa's disappearance. On August 21st, police dogs identified Hoffa's scent in the car. Gia Colon and Provenanzo, who denied having scheduled a meeting with Hoffa, were found to not have been near the restaurant that afternoon. Provenanzo told investigators that he was playing cards with Stefan Andretta, Thomas Andretta's brother, in Union City, New Jersey that day that Hoffa disappeared. Despite extensive surveillance and bugging, investigators found that the Mafia members whom they thought were involved were generally unwilling to talk about Hoffa's disappearance, even in private. On December 4th of 1975, a federal investigator in Detroit said in court, presided by James Paul Churchill, that a witness had identified three New Jersey men as having participated in the abduction and murder of James R. Hoffa. The three men were close associates of Provenanzo, that being Thomas Andretta, Salvatore Briguglio, and his brother Gabriel Briguglio. I do apologize if I get these names wrong. Sorry about that. Later in 1975, Michigan Attorney General Frank J. Kelly went to Waterford Township to supervise an unsuccessful digging expedition for Hoffa. After years of investigation involving numerous law enforcement agencies, including the FBI, officials have not reached a definite conclusion as to Hoffa's fate and who was involved. Hoffa's wife Josephine died on September 12th of 1980 and is interred at Whitechapel Memorial Cemetery in Troy, Michigan. On December 9th of 1982, Hoffa was declared legally dead as of July 30th, 1982, by Oakland County. 
County, Michigan probate judge Norman R. Bernard. In 1989, Kenneth Walton, the agent in charge of the FBI's Detroit office, told the Detroit News that he knew what had happened to Hoffa. Quote, I'm comfortable I know who did it, but it's never going to be prosecuted because we would have to divulge informants, confidential sources. End quote. In 2001, the FBI matched DNA from Hoffa's hair taken from a brush with a strand of hair found in Joseph Giacolone's car, but it is possible that Hoffa had traveled in the car on a different day. On June 16th of 2006, the Detroit Free Press published the entire Hoffex memo, a 56-page report prepared by the FBI for a January 1976 debriefing on the case at the FBI headquarters in Washington. Although not claiming conclusively to establish the specifics of a disappearance, the memo records a belief that Hoffa was murdered at the behest of organized crime figures who regarded his efforts to regain power in the Teamsters as a threat to their control of the union's pension fund. As of 2021, digs are still periodically conducted in the Detroit area in search of Hoffa's body, but a common theory among experts is that the body was cremated. Now we come to all the various claims and developments. So, there was a wide agreement amongst crime historians and investigators that Hoffa was murdered on the order of his enemies in the Mafia. However, key details remain either unknown or unprovable, and this has ensured that no individual has ever been charged in relation to this case. In discussing potential motives, both the 1976 Hoffex memo and scholarship prior to its release focused on Mafia opposition to Hoffa's plans to regain the Teamsters' leadership and the threat Hoffa posed to the Mafia's control over the Union's pension fund. The Hoffex memo noted that Provenanzo was not senior enough to order a mafia hit, though it did not rule out the possibility that his or someone else's personal vendetta against Hoffa was a motive. Scott Bernstein, a crime historian and journalist, argued in 2019 that Provenanzo's role in the entire case was limited to acting as a lure. Dan Moldier mentioned the possibility that Hoffa had retaliated against his Mafia opponents by cooperating with investigators against them. The Hoffex memo includes this as a possible motivation. Vincent Piersanti, the state government's former chief investigator into the Hoffa case, doubted that Hoffa could have seriously threatened the Mafia in this way, as any incriminating information he knew either would have incriminated himself or concerned crimes that were outside of the statute of limitations. Piersanti suggested that the killing was accidental and that the men who were sent to meet Hoffa were only meant to be insultingly low-level messengers. He argued that Hoffa had no realistic prospects for a comeback, that the disappearance did not share the usual characteristics of a mafia hit, and that it risked encouraging action against organized crime, as indeed happened. This theory did not gain wide acceptance among criminologists. In his 1991 book Hoffa, Arthur A. Sloan said that the most common theory of FBI investigators was that Ruffle Buffalino was the mob boss who ordered the murder and Salvatore Sally Bugs Bruguglio, his brother Gabriel Bruguglio, and Thomas Andretta and Charles Chucky O'Brien were the men who lured Hoffa away from the restaurant. The theory is that O'Brien was used as an unwitting dupe to lure Hoffa away because Hoffa was suspicious of Provenanzo and would not have entered the car unless there was a familiar figure present. Keith Coe a former U.S. prosecuting attorney, who is, has since suggested that O'Brien wouldn't, would have been considered too unreliable to be entrusted with a role in such a high-profile murder. He instead suggested that Vito Billy Giacolone was the familiar figure. The location of the murder is also unknown, but any violence in the restaurant parking lot would have been e would have easily attracted witnesses. Therefore, the Hoffex memo suspects Hoffa was lured away to a separate murder location. James Bacatalio, a professor of criminology and criminal justice at Northern Arizona University, suggested in 2017 that it was likely that Hoffa was murdered one mile away from the restaurant at the house of Carlo Lacata, the son of the mobster Nick Lacata.
Sloan listed a local waste incinerator and a landfill in Jersey City as the possible locations where the body was taken. The latter is also supported by Dan Moldea. Bacalato listed two waste incinerators in a crematorium, all in the Detroit area. He doubted the body had been transported a long distance. It's just not practical, he said. The Hoffix memo similarly said, If the Detroit LCN was used to assist in the disappearance, it is unknown why the body would be transported back to New Jersey when Detroit organized crime people have proven in the past that they are capable of taking care of such things. End quote. In the book I Heard You Paint Houses, Frank the Irishman Sheeran and the Closing of the Case on Jimmy Hoffa, published in 2004, author Charles Brandit writes that Frank Sheeran, an alleged professional killer for the mob and a longtime friend of Hoffa, confessed to assassinating him. According to the book, Sheeran claims O'Brien drove Hoffa and fellow mobster Sal Briguglio to a house in Detroit where he shot Hoffa twice in the back of the head. Further in 2003, Sheeran admitted to reporters that he murdered Hoffa through bloodstains found in the Detroit house in which Sheeran claimed the murder had happened were not determined to match Hoffa's DNA. The truthfulness of the book, including Sheeran's confession to killing Hoffa, has been disputed by The Lies of the Irishman, an article in Slate by Bill Tonelli, and Jimmy Hoffa and the Irishman, a true story by Harvard Law School professor Jack Goldsmith, which appeared in the New York Review of Books. Bacalato suggests that the Mafia could have entrusted the Irish-American with this role, and also believes that Hoffa would have refused to travel that far from the restaurant. Hoffa's body was rumoured to be buried in Giant Stadium in an episode of the Discovery Channel show Mythbusters, The Hunt for Hoffa. The locations in the stadium in which Hoffa was rumoured to be buried were scanned with a ground-penetrating radar that was intended to reveal if any disturbances indicated a human body had been buried there, but no traces of any human remains was ever found. In addition, no human remains were found when Giant Stadium was demolished in 2010. In 2012, Roseville, Michigan police took samples from the ground under a suburban Detroit driveway after a person reported having witnessed the burial of a body there around the time of Hoffa's 1975 disappearance. Tests by the Michigan State University anthropologists found no evidence of human remains. In January of 2013, the reputed gangster Tony Zarelli implied that Hoffa was originally buried in a shallow grave with a plan to move his remains later to a second location. Zarelli said that the plans were abandoned and that Hoffa's remains lay in a field in northern Oakland County, Michigan not far from the restaurant in which he had last been seen. Zarelli denied any responsibility for or, or association with Hoffa's disappearance. On June 17th of 2013, investigating the Zarelli information, the FBI was led to a property in Oakland Township in northern Oakland County, which was owned by Detroit mob boss Jack Toko. After three days, the FBI called off the dig. No human remains were found, and the case remains open. Thomas Andretta, who died in 2019, and his brother Stefan, who reportedly died of cancer in 2000, were named by the FBI as suspects. Both were New Jersey Teamsters and reputed Genovese crime family mob associates. The FBI called Thomas Andretta a trusted associate of Anthony Provenanzo, reported to be involved in the disappearance of Hoffa. In April 2019, interview with DJ Vlad, the former Colombo crime family capo Michael Franzese stated that he was certain that Hoffa's disappearance had been mob-related, that he was aware of the location of Hoffa's body and of the identity of his shooter, and had tapes that revealed details of his disappearance. Franzese said, I can tell you that it's wet, that's for sure, and upon good information, again, I think I know who the real shooter was. Still alive today, in prison. End quote. Here's a sound clip of that exchange. So what really happened with Jimmy Hoffa? I've, there's a lot of conspiracy. Knowing what you know, what happened with him? I get asked this question. It's the number, number one or two question I get asked all the time, no matter where I am. I could be in the Far East and they're asking me that question about Hoffa. That's how popular it is. But, um, you know, look, he did get on the wrong side of people. When he came out of prison, he was told to lay low and just stay back. 
And he refused to do that, didn't want to give up his position. There's no question he was taken out by my former associates. Now, the question is always, where is he buried? That's what everybody wants to know. I can tell you this, he's not in the Meadowlands, that's for sure, New Jersey, the stadium, he's not there, and they will never find Jimmy's body, never. Now, I had nothing to do with it, but you know, you hear things in that life. Uh, but I will tell you this, if you remember a couple of, maybe a year and a half ago, two years ago, a guy in prison writes a book and says he knows for sure where Hoffa is mm -hmm. buried. And he leads the FBI to the place, allegedly. They dig it up. Now, I had answered this question a thousand times over the years. So all of a sudden, I'm getting tweets and I'm getting emails and texts. Michael, maybe you were wrong. You know, they're digging it up. This guy says, you know, he's going to identify. I said, well, let's wait and see. They never found his body. The guy was smart, though. He sold a lot of books, you know, <laughs> you know by saying that. They'll never find you. So when body. you say they'll never find them, what does that really mean? Because in my mind, let me tell you where my creative mind goes. Let me okay. take my creative mind, and maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong. When you tell me they'll never find them, it's either a body went through a recycling machine, either the body was chopped up, either something happened where it's mathematically impossible to find it, burned body, something like that where it's not buried. Is that the direction you're going? Let's put it this way. Um, if, you, if you wanted to find his body or try to find his body, you'd have to look in a very wet place. Got it. And how deep is this wet place? Pretty deep. Pretty deep. <laughs> Pretty deep. <laughs> got it. Okay. Now, and I got to tell you something. I know that for a fact. 100%. 100%. Do you know location? Well, I, I, I know the general area. Got it. And actually, you know, it was, it was really interesting that a friend that I hadn't seen for a long time came out of prison maybe two and a half years ago. And he recorded a tape that I have in my possession. And that tape spells everything out because he was with the, sh the shooter that I happen to know very well, mm -hmm. and he laid it all out. And people have been trying to get that tape from me for a long time. Wow. Now, can anybody, can the government come to you and say, look, since you know what happened, you got to tell us or do this, who, how do, how's it they know 100%? They, they can't, right? Because at this point, you don't have to give any of this information no. out. No, I don't know. So you're going you're gonna to be buried, but you're going to go home with this information, no one's going to get it out of you. I believe so. Okay. Yeah, because I, but you never know. Let's see what happens. <laughs> you never you know. know. You know, you for the right know. price, if we do a movie, maybe we'll make a movie know. out of it and tell the story. In a deathbed statement, a landfill worker claimed to have buried Hoffa's body in a steel drum 15 feet below the surface in a landfill between the Pulaski Skyway and Jersey City, New Jersey. In October of 2021, the FBI obtained a warrant and completed a site survey in the landfill. Results of the survey have not been released. Now we come to the legacy. So, Hoffa's legacy remains controversial. Arthur Sloan wrote, To many, Hoffa was a kind of latter-day Al Capone. Others, he was a hugely successful in invoking working conditions for his truck driver constituents. With that, this case remains open, but with many unanswered questions that still remain unanswered. Please rate the show and let me know what you guys think about this and the many other cases I've covered. You can follow me on all major social media platforms, YouTube, BitChute, Dailymotion. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. Links are all down below in the description. If you have a case you'd like me to have a look at or cover, don't hesitate to send me a message. I'm your host, and this has been the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Until next time. Next on Unanswered Questions. The Summerton Man was an unidentified man whose body was found on the 5th of December 1948 on the beach at Summerton Park, a suburb of Adelaide, South Australia. 